Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, for these Wednesday, Wednesday series. And boy, last episode, I really went in depth on Daniel, but those, those first couple chapters are so much fun. Chapter six opens up with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And we got to a little bit of the political climate going into the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, Basically, Daniel's being very distinguished. He's being distinguished above the other men in the kingdom uh, by his intellect and basically the wisdom that God gives him. And so, you know, of course, there's a lot of jealousy because the the king is establishing his, his hierarchy of government and Daniel is rising to the top very quickly um, in a world where he is basically the sole believer, uh, essentially. And Daniel is also, you got to remember, he's a Jew from Jerusalem, who served under the former king, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And when the uh, Darius, the Mede, comes in, you know, he's bringing in a lot of the Medo-Persians with him. Um, And so, of course, this is a foreigner in a foreign land in the foreign kingdom that they've just conquered. And so, of course, for all of those that are of the same nationality and come from the same place as Darius they would not be very thrilled that this um, alien, so to speak, or foreigner is being given such a high position of honor. And so hence we have the plot uh, to discredit Daniel. And so they do a thorough background check and, and explore him. Basically, they hire like every PI they can find and do this massive personality search. And they're looking for anything they can use, buddy. And it speaks to Daniel's character that they can't find anything. And so they know very quickly that the only thing they have any hope of doing whatsoever is to set him up with something about the, his walk with God. And so there's the climate. And then in 16, we have um, basically where everything's kind of come to fruition, what they end up setting up. But one of the things they do is they come to Darius and they basically look at him and say, everybody should be worshiping you. And so there needs to be this punishment for anybody who would worship worship anything, anyone other than you. Um, And so he thinks that's a great idea. He doesn't think of Daniel. Maybe he doesn't even know that about Daniel Um, because, you know, he's not been privy to all of the information that they've dug up on Daniel. And so he he sets it in order, and he sets it like a royal decree. And one of the things about the decrees in this part of the book is that the king can't undo a decree that he created for some reason. And so by law, that decree cannot cannot be undone. And so his officials um, are very clever in how they have used the law to create this catch-22 to basically snare Daniel. And they use the king as a pawn to do it. Uh, And they truly checkmate the king in this scenario right here. So um, in any case, they catch Daniel uh, at the time that they've figured out that he goes and does his prayer. And so basically, in verse 16, the king gives orders and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke Uh, And said, Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve himself, will deliver you. 
Now, that's pretty incredible that the king would know that of Daniel's God. But um, I want to back up a little bit because the interesting thing is these last couple of verses, the king tries everything to undo what he's done. Um, He truly does, and at the end, he's not able to undo the steps that he got tricked into taking. Um, And so, you know, he puts Daniel in, and up to this point, you can tell that he's very, very connected to Daniel, and they have a very close relationship. And so, honestly, I want you to think about that as far as Daniel's character. He's managed to be incredibly close with Nebuchadnezzar, and he gets to see Nebuchadnezzar turn his life over to God, okay? And he's also been able to build a relationship with this conqueror coming in from another country um, who was should have been the enemy. And he's been able to build such a relationship that the king does everything he can to try to undo what's been set up by these satraps. Um, and when he can't, he says this of Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will de- deliver you himself. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the, the den, and the king sealed it with his signet ring and with the ring of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And then the king went off to his palace and spent the whole night fasting. You can see the influence of Daniel, can't you? Um, And no entertainment was brought before him, and sleep fled from him. So he had a very sleepless night. In the morning, in verse 19, the king rises at daybreak, and he makes haste to the lion's den. And he cries out with a troubled voice, Uh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I have was found innocent before him. And towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was lifted out of the den, and no injury was found on him whatsoever. Because he had trusted in his God. Verse 24. Then the king gives orders and the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people in all the nations and men everywhere who are living in the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, whom has who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so I want you to just understand this is kind of chronicles, these six chapters kind of chronicle the life, the personal life of uh, Daniel. And the interesting thing about these is that Uh, large parts of them are actually written in Aramaic, which would have been the language of Babylon. And so these stories are written in the Babylonian language. 
And then what you have in this book is just really interesting transitions from the Hebrew to Aramaic and then back to Hebrew towards the end of the book. Um, and so it, it's interesting because Daniel truly does make Babylon his home. Um, and so he even transitions language as he's recording these stories um, and these events in his life and what he sees happen. Chapter 7 through the rest of the book is a profound shift. And basically what we have in these chapters is we have visions that Daniel is given all the way through chapter 12. And there's four main four main visions that you're going to see. And I will be honest with you, I'm going to be the first one to tell you that when it comes to prophecy in scripture, I am not a scholar. This is not my forte, but one of the things that God has been doing over this last year is I am in the middle of a two-year study with precepts on the book of Revelations. And um, so I have been enjoying uh, doing a very in-depth look at what is actually written in the book of Revelations. And I think every single one of us started this class going, we're never going to be able to understand Revelations and prophecy. And it's all confusing. It's all pictures of beasts and things and ah, creatures and weird stuff. Um, and every single one of us have been amazed that when we put aside our fear and actually look at what's written, how much we have been able to understand and make sense of. Um, and when you're doing an inductive Bible study like a precepts format, you are being very careful that you do not read beyond what the text actually says. And so that is something that I have carried over into my own walk with God is that wherever I'm at in Scripture, I try very hard not to read beyond what the script, what the verses actually say. And I try to let them guide how I'm making sense of things. And so, you know, um, I will make lists of the things that a passage says about God. I'll make lists about what it says about heaven or hell or whatever themes um, we're talking about. So if like it's a passage where Jesus is talking about a shepherd, I might make a list of everything said about him as a shepherd, everything said about him, the sheep that follow him, um, and about other sheep in that passage. I might make any, any other characters that are listed, I might make lists of what's said about them. That would be how I would study that with observation. And observation is one of the key pieces to an inductive Bible study. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 7. I'm kind of going to fly over these. I, I've been pretty in-depth in the first couple chapters just because there's all of these fascinating stories and beautiful details. And Daniel's life truly is such an example of a godly man um, in, in government, in a government that is not focused around God and would he would have been surrounded by corruption uh, surrounded by, I mean, just ungodliness everywhere. Um, men who looked at him for his choices and would have scoffed. And uh, he was even set up for it, his choice to live a holy life before the Lord. So and in the midst of that, him living faithful, the Lord exalts him and gives favor and allows him to have a very unique position uh, at the side of these kings. Um, and so it truly is a beautiful story to dive in. And hopefully it's been, a, um, you guys have enjoyed looking at that more in depth. Okay, so let's look. Um, I want to kind of pan out a little bit. The visions. Um, there are several visions in this, like we've talked about. You have 
the great image, which was in chapter two, and that was the four kingdoms and the fifth kingdom that was going to come that was supernatural. It was God's kingdom. It was the rock that was carved out without tools and without hands, and it hits the bottom of the statue, and you remember the head was gold, and you know there was the chest and the arms, um, so on and so forth, all the way down to the feet that were partially clay and partially iron. And so that statue is crumbled by this stone that comes in and just destroys everything and it's this image of how God's kingdom when it comes it is going to subdue every other kingdom that's on earth Um, and most of that that image uh, sorry that um, vision that was given in chapter two has already come to fruition and we know exactly which kingdoms are referred to as each um, and so on and so forth so that is a fascinating thing if you want to look up that on your own um, it's really interesting because in places in scripture it talks about an animal figure for each of those kingdoms and if you look in history Every single animal lines up with every single one of those kingdoms um, in such a beautiful way. So that is chapter two's vision. Um, chapter seven has uh, the first prophetic image with a difference, and it actually mirrors the uh, the statue's explanation. And in this one, there's four beasts, and those line up with... For example, the gold at the top was Babylon, and the figure of Babylon was the lion, um, and that's in Daniel chapter 7, 4, uh, and that parallels with Daniel chapter 2, verse 38. The next, if we looked at that big statue that was given a vision to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, we saw the chest was made of silver and the chest and the arms, and in chapter 7, that corresponds with the bear the kingdom that has the bear in Daniel 7, verse 5. And that says, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth and between its teeth, and thus they said, Arise and devour much meat. And I kept looking, and behold, another one comes, like a leopard. And so these, there, you've got these fantastical images of... Um, hybrid creatures. Uh, Here's the thing. Don't get lost so much in that as just understanding that the Hebrew language is such a pictorial image. Um, It's a pictorial language. Even the letters are pictures. And so it's very common that when you're talking about things for God to use images, to God to use examples, stuff like that. Prophecy is the same way. These kingdoms are being described by a creature that in some way describes what that kingdom is going to be like or what it does, how it comes in, how it goes out, those kinds of things. And so for in-depth study, this is incredibly fascinating to kind of see the events of history and how it connects to the prophecy that's given about each of these. Um, And so to do that with this is honestly a much more in-depth study than what I'm going to do with you on these podcasts. Um, But, okay, so we have the lion. We have the bear in chapter 7. We have the leopard. And then we've got an indescribable beast coming out that we know is probably Rome, the Roman Empire at the time um, of Christ uh, in that period of time. And then Daniel uh, 7, 7 through 8 describes that. And then we have God's kingdom, which is described in 13 through 14. And I want to read this a little bit because we see Jesus in this one. 
here. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 7 says, I kept looking at the night in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all the people, nations, men of every language, might and might, serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And one of the things I want to take you to is in um, Revelations. Okay. Um, chapter 4, we have in Revelations, we have chapter 4, we have the scene in heaven. Um, and we've got this throne room. And the one thing is there's, it describes heaven and it's describing it pretty huge. And it's very clear that this is the Lord God Almighty. Well, that's the same that's referred to as the Ancient of Days. Okay. And then one of the things that happens that you see is that there is uh, grief. Like you see John being grieved because there's nobody to open this book. And then all of a sudden you have the lamb presented um, who is worthy to open the book. And so this scene right here where the son of man comes to the ancient of days and pre is presented before him, that is what happened when Jesus had paid the price on the cross, paid for sin, and went back to heaven. He literally presented himself as the propitiation uh, for our sin, as the appeasement of God's wrath. Um, as the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so what's being described here is that moment in heaven that John witnesses in that first part of Revelation where he sees the Almighty, he sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and then he sees that there's nobody to open the book, and then he sees Jesus, the Lamb, who's slain, and it describes him as being slain, and he's presented as worthy to open. And so this scene right here mirrors that in Revelation. Okay, so um, that would be all for chapter 7. In chapter 8, you have another vision that Daniel's given, um, and this one is about a ram and a he-goat. Um, and I'll let you guys kind of do some research on that one. But what I want to point out a little bit is that when you're studying Revelation, it gives you a big, um, what do I want? Like a, you can start to build the clothesline, so to speak, of, of the timeline of where the events are and, and that kind of thing. And then you can go back to some of these other passages and plug them and, and literally hang them on the timeline. And so starting with Revelations is incredibly helpful because once you're familiar with how Revelations describe certain events and things, you'll see it in all other places of Scripture. At least that's what I'm finding. Um, and so I'm fascinated by this because going into year two of the precept study, um, we are going to be going all over Scripture in other places and putting those passages in place on the timeline. Um, to get a better picture of everything. So finishing up Revelation, we're left going, okay, so when are believers raptured? Like, it doesn't answer that yet. Um, and so we haven't been able to definitively, based on just Revelations, pin down 
when believers are, are, are taken out of the equation. Um, and so you can kind of understand why over the years uh, there's come to have three different versions of when the rapture takes place. Because if, if you're looking at some of these passages as standalone, Revelations, for example, doesn't clearly in and of itself answer that. Um, and so what it does answer um, is it very clearly talks about the halfway pe- period through the three and the seven years. So the first three and a half versus the second three and a half. And it very clearly defines um, that transition between peace and um, the second part. Uh, and then it, it uh, talks about a lot of other key events like um, the millennium is mentioned and, you know, you have, so you have key pieces that it's absolutely clear about, um, but the other pieces are going to be clarified as we look at probably at some of the other passages. So I'm curious to see where I end up in a year on uh, biblical prophecy. So the thing is, uh, the biggest thing I've learned though, is don't be afraid of these kinds of things. Encourage yourself to be a learner and that. That I would encourage no matter where you're picking up in Scripture. Um, Okay, so chapter 10 through 12 is a word for latter days is kind of what this vision is called. And there's a section that talks about Persia with Daniel uh, 11 verse 2, chapter 11 verse 2, um, and Daniel 11, 3 through 4, and also in 11, 5 through uh, verse 45, it talks about Greece and the Greek empire. And the interesting thing... Um, I was reading a commentary on this to kind of just build in my, my historical background because I'm kind of, you know, I learned history separate from the Bible. So I learned the stories of like Alexander the Great and what all he did, but I didn't have an education that connected that with scripture and what was going on in the time and Bible times and how those pieces crosswalk. Um, and I think that's most of us who had a secular education um, and didn't end up in a Christian school with integrated curriculum. And so for me, one of the, the 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 hardest things that I've had to do is to um, pick up those historical pieces and figure out how they web into um, biblical narrative or, or biblical accounts. Um, and so, Book of Daniel, um, actually chapter eleven, is amazing because this chapter literally predicts hundreds of years of transition in history that. <laughs> all the way down to Alexander the Great, um, that there's no way he could have known outside of God. Um, And so uh, there's been a lot of scholars and historians that really have a hard time with that um, because they don't want to give the Bible the authority that it clearly has. And so they have really struggled with some of these chapters, uh, even going so far as to go, there is no way that could have been written before 120 BC or whatever, um, and to really clarify some of that. But the thing you guys need to realize is that the Old Testament canon was complete, closed, and nothing added like at around 300 BC, somewhere in there, 200s, 300 BC. So literally, okay, 100 or so years before we see Alexander the Great, all of that. And this would have been written, Daniel was written in about 600 to uh, BC to about 535 BC. So we very clearly know when this was written. Um, and so the canon wasn't closed for hundreds of years yet. And the events in chapter 11 happen 
after that. Um, because, uh, yeah, the Septuagint was translated um, into Koine Greek, which was something Alexander the Great did, and the canon was completely established before that. So, um, in any case, it, it's this is just fascinating. So, um, I would highly encourage, you know, pick up... A, um, a, one of the things that I like to use is called the Blue Letter um, Bible app, and... Um, I like it because as I'm reading, I can press on a verse um, and it'll automatically take me to um, options that I have where I can look up a Greek word. If I'm curious what a word actually means and get the definition, I can click and find where else that word is used in scripture. Um, you know, I can click and look at commentaries, which is um, some of our spiritual forefathers and their understanding and research of these passages, which it can be incredibly helpful. Okay, so for the last part of today's episode, I am going to talk a little bit about some of the cool stuff in Daniel 11, okay? Now, if you were to just straight up read Daniel 11, you would have a really hard time picking out the historical figures that are being described in this entire chapter, okay? So I'm just very quickly going to mention a couple with the verses that talk about them. All right, so I'm going to start actually in, let's do Daniel 11.6. So, let's see here. After some years, they will form an alliance. And so this is talking about the kings of the south, the kings of the north, you know, all of these kings, okay? And the interesting thing is we can go back to history and know exactly who these kings are. So I'm going to point out just a couple of them as we go. So in chapter uh, 11, verse 6, after some years, they will form an alliance, the king of the south, um, particularly with the northern kingdom, okay? They were fighting, but they'll end that and they'll join themselves together. Okay, so for, this says, after some years they'll form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. She will be given up along with those who brought her and the one who sired her as well as he supported her in those times. The interesting thing is what happens is the king of Egypt gave up his daughter, um, Berenice, to the king of the north, who divorced his wife that he currently had in order to marry her. But when Ptolemy died, and then he got rid of Bernice, took his wife back again, who in turn poisoned him. And she also killed Bernice's son, um, that she had had, which put her two sons back in line for the throne. Um, and so we have a shysty woman that happens here. Basically, history turns into a, a soap opera, okay? And Daniel has outlined the soap opera in chapter 11. And so it's hysterical to look at um, what actually happened in history that we know of and how it's described in chapter 11. Um, I want to keep going a little bit. Um, the brother of this Bernice was Ptolemy, uh, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but it's E-U-E-R-G-E-T-E-S, okay? And he invades Syria, just as it's described in verses 8 through 10. Um, his uh, sons, the king of the north, who was defeated by um, Eurydice, 
I don't know what his name is, and I don't know how to pronounce it. He assembles this multitude of forces, and then you see that in chapter 10 through 12. Um, and so it's just interesting to look at this because we've got, you know, you should remember the name Ptolemy. Um, he's mentioned in this. Um, and so on the, all the way down, okay, all the way down, we've got Cleopatra's in this. Um, Antioch the Great took the daughter of Cleopatra, um, and they make this deal where she would marry this irrigate sky. And then when she got there to the kingdom of Egypt, she would be for her old man. Like she would be on his side and support him. Um, but some years later, she becomes the wife of him. And rather than siding with her father, Antiochus the Great, she sides with her husband against her dad. Um, and so his little plan backfires. Um, and so... Uh, you can kind of see that in this passage here too. It's just, this is just amazing, all the way down to Alexander the Great. Um, and so, yeah, the king of Egypt, his brother was in Alexandria. Both of them were doing a lot of lying, cunning, and all of that. And so in verse Daniel eleven twenty seven, and they shall speak lies at one table and shall not prosper. And they were just lying to each other, making treaties and everything else, but neither one of them intended to honor them. Um, and so you can just see for yet at the end shall be a time appointed and then they shall return to his land with great riches in the hearts shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. And at that time he shall return and come towards the south. And that's Daniel eleven twenty seven through 29. So he sought again to invade. Antiochus Epiphanius seeks to invade Egypt. And so you can just feel it. Anyway, this chapter is amazing. So this would be something, check out some commentaries, but this was written, Daniel describes all of this, um, years, hundreds of years before any of it comes to fruition. Um, and so if you don't remember Alexander the Great, this section culminates with describing what happens with Alexander the Great. And you'll remember he's the one that brought common language to the area. He brought that Koine Greek. And that's what the New Testament is predominantly written in. There's a little bit of passages with the Aramaic that are quotes of Jesus speaking. So anyway, I hope this has been fascinating. I hope I wet, just it like lit a fire of curiosity in you um, to kind of get in here and study and to see what you can figure out. For those of you that are history buffs, for sure, hopefully I didn't butcher names too bad. Um, any case, thanks for joining. And next episode, we are going to start all of the minor prophets. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to OpenTheWordPodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit, everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from Modern Farmhouse to transitional design. Then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew 
at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed.